life. Amen. Acts chapter number 21, and uh, we'll be in verse 27 down through 31, 27 through 31. Once you've found that, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts 21, and we'll read from 27 down through 31. The Bible says, And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, and stirred up all the people, and laid hands on him, speaking of Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and have polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city of Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city, speaking of Jerusalem and the temple area there, all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. And forthwith the doors were shut, and as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Paul walked into Jerusalem. He walked into a mob scene a mob that hated him and wanted to kill him. The title of the message this evening is this, Serving God in the Lion's Den. Serving God in the Lion's Den. Uh, Paul walked into his Lion's Den, walking into Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to look at that this evening. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our church. Thank you for this crowd that's gathered here this evening. And uh, Lord, it probably be the only time this exact crowd is assembled together. Lord, you have something uh, special for each one here. And so, Lord, challenge us, stir us, encourage us, and prod us to do your work and your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before I get into my message, I did was given this um, by Brother Scarpetti this morning. I slipped it in my Bible. I had every intention of reading it. And the busyness of the uh, morning, I failed to do so. Let me read it now. It says, To my dear church family, you have come through again with support and prayers. We thankfully had mild cases and are doing well. Thank you all for your prayers, cards, and phone calls. When I've been at my lowest, your prayers have carried me. Thank you for your love, Mike Scarpetti. So uh, thankful for all of you uh, encouraging Brother Mike. That's what we talked about last Sunday evening, doing our part to help bear one another's burdens. And thank you for doing that with Brother Mike. All right, uh, serving God in the lion's den. Sometimes danger comes out of nowhere while you are serving the Lord. Uh, when I was in Bible college, there was a, a fellow student who was in Chicago visiting his bus route late on a Saturday afternoon. It was uh, this time of the year, so the, t- the sun had gone down quite a bit early in the day. It was probably 5.30, 6 o'clock, and someone mistakenly identified him as a drug dealer, and, and someone thought that they had a beef with him that they didn't have, and they shot at his car, and the bullet came through the back window and hit him in the back of the head, and uh, he ended up in the hospital. Uh, the car crashed, and uh, the ambulances were called, and uh, they had to work to save his life, and they did save his life, and to this day, he speaks with a slur. He was in the lion's den, but didn't know he was in the lion's den. He just thought he was visiting his bus route. He just thought he was just a routine Saturday like he had done many, many times before, and lo and behold, he had a bullet uh, catch him in the side of the head there. He was serving God in the lion's den, had no idea that Satan was about to sucker punch him. Uh, other times, people are faced with a choice, and they choose to walk into the lion's den. Uh, they put full faith in God to protect them, no matter the outcome. They, they know it, they walk in anyway, knowing they're walking into danger, and some say they're tempting fate, and I say no, they're not tempting fate. They're being obedient to God's command in the face of danger, and they're trusting that God's going to protect them. I think of David walking in that valley against Goliath. 
right? Now, that was stepping out on faith. That was walking into David's own uh, um, lion's den. I think of, obviously, Daniel and the lions, right? Daniel got down on his knees and prayed, did he not? Knowing that uh, the uh, edict had been signed and that uh, the lion's den was awaiting him, and he could have closed his windows and prayed in private, but he didn't. He opened up the windows and made it known, and, uh, and he was thrown in the lion's den. How about the three Hebrew boys? They would not bow. They would not bow. That sea of people bowing, and the three Hebrew boys standing around looking at everyone, they're the only ones standing. And the king says, well, let me repeat my orders. And they say, you know, you don't have to repeat your orders, king. We understand full well. And whether or not God, God can save us, whether or not he does, we ain't bowing. You can throw us in there all you want. We'd rather die and we'd rather burn than, uh, than, than, than bow. And so they stood. They walked and premeditatively walked into their lion's den. How about Queen Esther? Queen Esther was uh, the, 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 the queen to the king, uh, Artaxerxes, and there was no one allowed in the king's presence without an invitation. It had been a while since Queen Esther had seen her husband. She walked in anyway to ask for the banquet where she would spare the lives of the Jews. And uh, what did she say? Well, she said, if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. There are other examples of people who stepped out on faith, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible, and walked straight into a, danger, a dangerous situation and did so because it was right. And they had that very attitude, if I perish, I perish. Now, let's step out of the Bible for a moment. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about us. Half the battle is serving the Lord to begin with, Right? Forget danger, no danger, right? Comfortable, uncomfortable, easy, not easy. Just serving the Lord. That's half the battle, is it not? Getting off the, 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 the bed, getting out of the bed or getting off the chair, walking out the front door and getting in the car, getting to church and finding an area to be plugged in and, and to serve uh, as a pastor, lighting a fire under people and getting them to serve. Boy, that is half the battle Forget whether or not there's danger involved. Forget whether or not they've been called to uh, charge the charge of the light brigade, right? Alfred Lord Denison wrote the charge of the life, light brigade and running into the, the mouth of the lion, running into uh, danger and fear as a good soldier. And uh, uh, forget uh, all of that. Just getting people to serve, period. Getting yourself to serve, period, is half the battle. Then there are those who will serve God, but only when it is convenient for them to do so, right? Uh, you know, I've been ushering for two years, and I'm, you know, I'd just like to not have to feel like I got to be there ten minutes early. I, if I want to walk in late and sit on the pew and have everyone serve me, that's what I want to do. You know what? I'm done with this ushering thing. It's no longer convenient for me. I'd, I'd play the piano or sing in the choir, but that would inconvenience my life, and you know, I, that would that would interrupt my Sunday afternoon nap, and and uh, that would pull me away from football early, and uh, whatever the excuses are, it, we would serve the Lord, we would give more to the Lord, but we don't want our convenience stepped on. Forget about walking into a lion's den, forget about, uh, forget about doing it in the face of danger, forget about stepping out on faith and, and risking our life for the Lord. Many people can't step away from their own comfort to serve the Lord. Then there are those who are part of the special forces of the Lord's army. These are people who are filled um, uh, with this mentality of, I will stand for Jesus even when I know 
that it may very well cost me my life. I think about Christians in countries where it is illegal to be a Christian and own a Bible. And how that this morning, they snuck into some underground house church knowing they very well could be imprisoned, sent to a labor camp, or killed. They took a stand for what they believed, and they put their life in danger. They have a Bible in their house, even though it was against the law to do so. They know that if they get caught with that Bible, they can be separated from their children or their spouse and may never see them again. These are people who serve God and love God. And they do it premeditatively. They do it carefully. They know that in a moment's notice, they could land in jail. I think these people are part of God's special forces. And I, I, that's, that's who I want to be. That's where I want to be. I don't want to just go to church when it's convenient. I don't just want to go to church and serve the Lord when uh, it fits within my schedule and my time frame. I want to serve God even when it is inconvenient, even when it costs me greatly, even when my own life is at risk. Now, we live in a country where, thankfully, we have our freedom of religion, and we don't have to worry about police breaking in these doors and arresting us and carrying us away to jail. In fact, if that were to happen, that would be scandalous in this country. And I praise God for that. I praise God for that. There may be a day where that's not the case anymore. And I sure hope that when that day comes, and White Oak Baptist Church has to morph and change, that you'll still be part of this church, or part of a church, serving God with your life. Paul knew the animosity against him in Jerusalem. He knew that Jerusalem was his personal lion's den. He was bent on going there even if it cost him his life. As we go through the fine details of the story here in a moment, we'll see that Paul likewise had a if-I-perish-I-perish attitude about going to Jerusalem. I believe that The time has come for Christians to stand for Jesus even when it is not convenient. The time has come for Christians to stand for Jesus even when it makes them unpopular. The time has come for Christians to stand for Jesus even when it puts their own well-being and even their life at risk. God is calling each of us here to bear our cross as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Are you up for the call? We're going to look closely at three groups of people out of Acts 21 this evening, and we're going to see how each group handled Paul and how Paul handled each group. The Gentile uh, brethren loved Paul. The Jewish brethren um, uh, would mishandle Paul, and the Jewish mob would try and kill Paul. Uh, quickly here, when you serve God with your life, listen, uh, please hear what I'm about to say. When you serve God with your life, the devil and his crowd are going to hate you. They are going to hate you. I refer you to John 15, where Jesus said, you're not better than me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they don't hate you, then you're not doing something right. They are going to hate you. And so don't be surprised by it. I I see Christians who are just so distraught over the world being evil, and I'm like, you know the world is lost, right? You know that Satan is the prince and power of the air, right? 
Why are you surprised when sinners sin? I shouldn't shock you, right? I can't believe how evil da 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 is in this particular church. And I'm not talking about Christian churches. I'm talking about like non-Christian churches. Yeah, the, this church leader did this, and, and he's supposed to be. Re, listen, religion is a tool of the devil to take people to hell. Why are you shocked when lost people act lost? The world is going to hate you if you're walking in the light and they're walking in the darkness. They're going to hate your light. Don't be shocked when the lost in the world hate you. Furthermore, uh, it's a great day when you come to grips with the fact uh, that not only when you serve Christ is the world going to hate you, but some Christians are not going to like you. Some Christians are not going to like you. They're going to have a different opinion about the way that we serve the Lord. They're going to see it differently than you do. They're just going to make up their mind that they just don't like you. How many of you here ever had someone that you liked that just didn't like you? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You liked them, but they did not like you back. Right? And you tried real hard to get them to like you, and they were just like, nope, not going to like you. Doesn't matter how hard you try. I've just made up my mind. I don't like you. It feels that way sometimes, right? Sometimes people don't like you. They don't like your mentality. They don't like your attitude toward the Bible or your stances on Scripture. They parse things differently. They see things differently. Hey, hear what I'm about to say. That doesn't make you right and them wrong. It doesn't make them right and you wrong. Different people love God in different ways. And you know what? We're going to get to heaven and God's going to straighten us all out. The best thing you can do if there's a Christian in this world who doesn't like you is just pray for him and smile. Amen? Pray for him and smile. It's okay. You don't have to go around and besmirch their name. You don't have to put them down. You don't have to talk bad about them. You're not, uh, you're not the, 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 the standard bearer of the right version of Christianity, and neither are they. The Lord holds that. And so love them and pray for them. Paul uh, was loved by the Gentile Christians, but he was not so loved by the Jewish Christians. Did that make the Jewish Christians bad people? No. Did that make Paul a bad person? No. They were both great people. They just didn't get along, and we're going to see that tonight. So let's jump in here this evening and notice these three groups of people, and how they handled Paul as we consider the truth of serving God in the lion's den. Let's jump in this evening. Number one, notice the Gentile Christian's caution. The Gentile Christian's caution. Let me give you an A and a B here. Notice letter A, the brotherly affection. Their brotherly affection. Look down, look down at verse number one. Let's begin in verse one. Read down to the beginning of verse four. The Bible says, And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had Launched, we came with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto uh, Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara, and finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now, when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden or unload her cargo. And finding ships, we tarried, and finding disciples rather, we tarried there. Seven days. So look back there at verse 4. We're getting the trip from Miletus. Paul was in Miletus with the elders of Ephesus, and now he's left Miletus, and he's on his journey out of Macedonia, out of Asia. He's heading toward 
Jerusalem. He's gotten in a, str- a ship that's a stronger ship, a ship that doesn't have to stick close to the land. And uh, he's gone past Cyprus. You know, and listen, uh, when they saw Cyprus and passed it, it was on their left side. I think Paul probably looked out there and he probably thought of Sergius Magnus, the guy he had uh, led to the Lord there, that ruler, that emperor. He probably thought of Barnabas. He probably thought of John Mark and uh, how they had gone there to minister. I'm sure there were a lot of memories that flooded into Paul's heart. They, they travel past Cyprus and they get to Tyre. They're going to be in Tyre for seven days. Seven days while the ship unloads its cargo, reloads cargo. And so they've got seven days in port, seven days of a layover. And what do they do? Look back at verse 4. The Bible says, and finding disciples. We tarried there seven days. Now, the Greek word there for finding is the... This, there's only two times that particular Greek word is found in the New Testament. And uh, the word literally means to search out. To search out. So uh, what happened is they landed in port and they didn't readily know of a church community there in um, uh, Tyre. And so they went looking for a church body to be a part of. And we'll see in a minute how that turned out for them, but uh, they went looking. And uh, I just want to make a quick point of application here. Uh, Whenever you're not in Stratford, for whatever reason, whether you're on a work trip, you're on vacation, you ought to search out other disciples. Search out other disciples. Uh, I know folks who love to watch the live stream even when they're on vacation. All right, And listen, that's better than not doing church at all. Uh, I would tell you, though, that watching our church's live stream on vacation ought to be plan B. Plan B. What's plan A? Plan A is to search out another gospel-preaching church and go there while you're on vacation. Amen? You ought to do that. Find one. Uh, A couple of things will happen. Number one, you'll get a chance to meet other really good Christians. And by the way, don't go in. I I just want to give this quick word of, um, of advice. Don't walk into another church with a judgmental attitude. Don't walk around and look and think, our church is better than this one. You know what? Your church might be better than that one. I hope you feel that way. But don't walk in with that attitude. Walk in and understand this is a different church in a different community, and they're doing things in a way that reaches this community. Amen? And go in with an a open heart, and go in with a friendly attitude. I've heard a lot of people say, I went to this church on vacation, and no one even shook my hand. How many of you ever had that experience? Don't raise your hand because I'm going to pick on you here in a minute. You know why you didn't shake anyone's hand? Because you didn't shake anyone's hand. All right? You go in, walk in, and you sit on the back row, and you think, I wonder if anyone's going to come over here and shake my hand. You go in that church, and you be friendly. Meet people. Talk to them. Maybe you're part of the COVID crowd that doesn't shake hands. That's fine. I'm not picking on those that are that way. Give someone a fist bump. Give someone an elbow bump. Wave at somebody. Uh, listen, be friendly. Talk to people. Go out of your way to meet other believers in other areas. Paul got off the boat, and the very first thing he did is he went to find a church for the seven days he was going to be in town so that he could minister. There's nothing quite like interacting with other believers while in another part of the country or even the world. Was it three weeks ago, four weeks ago on a sunny night? We arrived in Hauha, Peru. Hauha is where the little airport is that we fly in and out of to get to Angel's hometown. Hauha is about an hour away from my wife's hometown. There's a missionary there who's been in Peru, uh, 
pretty much his whole life. I think he had some time out uh, serving the Lord in the areas. But his parents were missionaries there in that area. And so he was raised. He actually went to the same school that Angela went to. And the same exact private school Angela went to, he went to. And so uh, this missionary brought us in. And he, uh, he fed us. He put us up in a hotel. And he had me preach in his church on a Sunday night. And you know what I, I realized is that Christian believers love the Lord in English and in Spanish, and in every other language of the world. Christian believers uh, uh, have a kindred spirit toward each other, no matter where they are in the world. I was in that church service, and boy, those folks could sing. They could sing. You say, well, they have a choir? No, there was no choir. The congregation was singing. Man, their Sunday evening auditorium was packed out, and those folks, they, they reared back and they let it fly. I had tears running down my cheeks singing with them and, 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 and listen, uh, just rejoicing with them and praising the Lord with them. No, I don't know their culture quite all that well, and I didn't grow up there, and I don't understand everything about uh, all of that goes on in, in that city, but I'll tell you this, they loved the Lord, and I loved the Lord, and there was a kindred spirit there. When you go on vacation, find a good church. And go. I, I used to pull up the yellow pages on vacation. Now you can pull up Google. Uh, but find a good church and, um, and go. Amen? Uh, look down at verse number 5. It says uh, about Paul and this group of disciples at Tyre. It says, And when he had accomplished those days, seven days, we departed and went our way. Now remember, he didn't know any of these people when he arrived. And they all, they all okay, these are the disciples there in Tyre. They all brought us on our way with wives and children. So we were out of the city and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. That's special. In the seven days they were there, they made such a connection with these believers, these new friends, that when it was time to head back to get on the boat, the family groups went down with them to where the boat was. And they had a prayer meeting on the beach. And then Paul and his, Paul and his team got on the boat to leave and these folks went home. Verse 6, and, we had, uh, and when we had taken our leave... I'm sorry, look at verse 7. Uh, and when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist. This is the Philip that we find um, in Samaria, in the Ethiopian eunuch. It says there, which is one of the seven, referring to the first seven deacons, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. So Philip is such a godly man. His own daughters are soul winners. They're prophesying the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul got to spend some time in Caesarea, in the house of Philip, with his four daughters and no doubt his wife. And what's going on here is while Paul is heading from station to station on his way to Jerusalem, he's making connections with more and more Christian believers. He's, he's enjoying that brotherly affection, that warmness in the Lord. Letter A, we see their brotherly affection. We're looking at the Gentile Christian's caution. Notice letter B, we see their bold admonishment, their bold admonishment. Look back at verse number 4. We're going to see with the disciples there at Tyre. And again, remember, these people didn't know him before he arrived. He had to go look for him. Verse 4, and finding disciples after having searched out disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit, notice the capital S, this is the Holy Spirit, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. What was their caution? Paul, the Spirit of God is telling us to tell you you should not go to Jerusalem. There's bad things that await you there. 
Last week we talked about the, the two possibilities. Was it Paul's idea to go or was it the Lord's idea to go? And, and I was talking to Pastor Andrew and he gave me an opinion uh, yesterday on what he thought. And, and I've read all kinds of opinions on this. Verse 4 seems to say the Spirit of God was working through these new friends of his to tell him, do not go to Jerusalem. Look down at verse number 10. Look down at verse number 10. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea. So now he's in Caesarea. Verse 10, he's in Caesarea. There came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Agabus is about to put on a show for everybody. Look at verse 11. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle or his coat and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth his girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, we've met Agabus before. Acts chapter 11, he, uh, he correctly predicted a famine that would come into the world. And lo and behold, uh, it came. And, and so here, he shows up from Judea. He, he just walks from Judea into Caesarea. He walks into wherever uh, Paul is, if it's the house of Philip, and he takes his coat. Maybe it's laying on a chair. He takes his coat and he ties up his hands and he ties up his feet and he's sitting on the ground with his hands and his feet tied. And Agabus just declares, listen, whoever owns this coat, this is what's going to happen to that man if he goes into Jerusalem. Well, the Spirit of God sent Agabus uh, Paul's way to sort of warn him, hey, this was coming, and, and, and to give this great visual illustration, look at verse 12, we see the admonishment not to go, and when we had heard these things. Notice the word we. Luke is writing this. Who is the we in this verse? The we is every single member of Paul's team. This is every single person present in the room. This is Philip and his daughters, probably Philip's wife. This is Agabus. This is the other uh, believers who happen to be present from the church in Caesarea. And when we had heard these things, after Agabus had put on the show, when we had heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Can you see the scene here? Agabus is sitting on the floor with his hands and his feet tied with a coat, saying, Paul, if you go, you're going to die. You're going to, or, or, or rather, you're going to be captured and, and handed over to the Gentiles. And, 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 and everyone in the room is telling Paul, don't go, don't go. This is like a president in his war room with his cabinet around him. And every member of his cabinet saying, do not do this. Do not do this. Look at verse um, 13. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, would not be persuaded, look here, it says, we ceased, we gave up, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we took up our carriage or our our bags and went up to Jerusalem. You know what Paul is saying here? Paul's mind was made up, good, bad, or indifferent. His head and his heart were locked on the idea of going into the lion's den. He was ready to die if that's what it meant. His friends were appealing to his heart, but no one was going to appeal to his head. He's basically saying there where, where, where he says, um, uh, verse number uh, 13, What mean ye to weep and break my heart? He's saying, guys, you're killing me. All right? 
Guys, stop it. You're killing me here. Uh, you're telling me not to go. You're begging me not to go. My mind's made up. I'm going into Jerusalem. I had the disciples entire uh, tell me through the Spirit not to go. I have Agabus here putting on a show. I have all of you telling me not to go. It's no good. I'm going to Jerusalem. You say, well, pastor, was Paul in direct disobedience to the Spirit of the Lord? I'm not prepared to say that. I, I do know that because we read the rest of the book of Acts, God did mighty, mighty things through Paul as a result of him going to Jerusalem. I think there's a great point here to be made is that there is the perfect will of God and there is the permissive will of God. I don't know for certain if going into Jerusalem was God's perfect will or permissive will, but I do know this. Paul's heart was in a place where he wanted to serve the Lord, and God still used him to do tremendous things, even if it was God's permissive will. Now listen up. I'm going to make a strong application here to each of you. We all, can, uh, uh, we all can analyze our life looking backwards and think, if I had done this different, and if I had done that different, and if I had made this decision different, boy, I could have avoided this hurt and this trial, and it would have put me in a different place in life. How many of you have ever fallen into the trap of doing that? Would you raise your hand if you've ever fallen in the trap of doing that? Can I tell you that is a total waste of time? However you've gotten where you are today, if you'll give your heart to serving the Lord, you may not be in God's original perfect will from when you were born, but you can still serve God in His permissive will, and it is a beautiful thing. It is a wonderful thing. Listen, uh, there are great, great, great days ahead of you serving the Lord if you'll give your heart to Him. We see, number one, the general of the Gentile Christians' caution. Boy, they loved Paul. They loved him deeply. They did not want him to go to Jerusalem. They knew the danger that awaited him. Let's just say the Jewish Christians did not feel the warm and fuzzies the Gentiles felt toward Paul. Number two, notice the Jewish Christians' conditions. Conditions. Let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Letter A, notice Paul's compelling report. Paul's compelling report. Look at verse number 16. The Bible says, There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Manassan of Cyprus, an old disciple, with whom we should lodge. So Manassan must have lived in Caesarea and had a home there in Jerusalem. So they bring Manassan with them from Caesarea into Jerusalem. They're going to stay at Manassan's house. Verse 17, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. This is the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor at the church of Jerusalem, and all the elders were present. This would have been the elder board of the deacon board that worked with James in running that church. So Paul takes his team in, and they're introduced back and forth uh, to James and the elders. Look at verse number 19. And when we had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Now that word particularly in verse 19, particularly, that means he went into great detail. He was very detailed in his report. Now, I, I imagine Paul and his Gentile team walking in and them explain, exchanging pleasantries. Maybe Paul led with the offering that he had collected from the churches all over Macedonia and there in Corinth. Maybe he led with the offering, right? Now, remember, we've talked about this. The church of Jerusalem, they did not care for Paul because Paul was responsible for seeing many of their people killed. Right? He had gone in and had them arrested and, and, and killed and all those things. And so they really didn't like 
Paul. How many of you can understand why the church of Jerusalem were not uh, a big fan of the Apostle Paul? You all understand that? So Paul walks in, and these elder board and James, they know the sentiment of their church body toward Paul. I bet Paul walked in, because this is how I would have done it, I bet Paul walked in and led with, hey, by the way, here's the offering that we collected for you guys. Right? Wouldn't that be a good first tactical move to walk in saying, Here are here's a lot of money to help the impoverished church. And by the way, I helped collect this because, listen, this is a peace offering. I'm trying to make peace with you guys. And you read back uh, through this passage, you get the idea that Paul and the church of Jerusalem uh, uh, liked each other. I don't think that was the case. I think the church of Jerusalem uh, were cordial uh, and, and were professional toward Paul. And we'll see here in just a moment, they really didn't like Paul because they're going to do some things Paul's direction that just weren't real, real nice. In fact, they were going to set Paul up here in a minute to uh, end up getting arrested and almost killed. I don't think that was their intention, but boy, they really didn't leave Paul in a good place. But he walks in and he gives them the money and then he begins, they, they introduce each other's teams, right? Paul's got all these Gentiles with him. They're standing in the presence of the Jews who really didn't care for the Gentiles, sort of tolerated the Gentile Christians. And Paul's introducing to Luke and Timothy and Titus and some of the other, Gaius and some of the other men he had with him. And, and then uh, James introduces the elders to Paul's crowd, and then Paul starts in and he begins to tell the stories about how God has used him on those three missionary journeys. Uh, um, uh, let's see. Um, Paul starts into the stories of how God has worked throughout the Jewish, uh, but mostly Gentile communities all across the known world. He would have told stories about his time in Galatia, Salamis, uh, Paphos, Perga, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, uh, Illicrim. Uh, he would have talked about the people that had been reached in those cities, thousands of people saved, baptized, and disciples. But he would have not only told about places and people, but stories of persecution and prison. He would have shared stories of Mars Hill and stories of miracles and magicians and of mighty movements of the Spirit. Most likely these narrow-minded Jewish Christians had never heard of such stories from the wild, wild west of the Gentile world. We see uh, Paul's compelling report, notice letter B, their cold-hearted response. Their cold-hearted response. Look down at verse number 20. Verse number 20. The Bible says, and when they, that's the elder board of the church of Jerusalem, this is James and the elders, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him. Now, the first and, and when they had heard, uh, that and is great. They, they heard Paul's report and they, they glorified the Lord and all that had been done for the kingdom of Christ. But they were not done. It, it's the second and that gives us the cold-hearted response. This is like a, a spouse that says, I'm sorry I did fill in the blank. You know, when, you're, did, when you, you have a fight with your spouse... Slip in some marriage advice here, all right? When you have a spite with your, fight with your spouse, say, I'm sorry. And then when you're done saying you're sorry and what you're sorry for, shut your mouth. <laughs> Don't say and or but. Because nothing good's going to come out after that and your apology is going to be totally erased. I'm sorry I left the toilet seat up. But... If you weren't so blah, 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 you know what? The apology is completely missed on the other person. Now here, they, and uh, we'll look back at verse number 20, and you'll see what I mean. And when they heard it, they got Paul finishes his long report, telling all these stories about all these people getting saved. 
When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. I get the idea from the rest of the passage that this is a token glorifying the Lord. They're just giving lip service to glorifying the Lord. You'll see what I mean here in a minute. Look at the second and. And said unto him, Now, thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. You talk about the thousands of Gentiles which believe. That's great. But we've got thousands of believers here in Jerusalem that are Jews. And let's just say they don't see things quite like you do, Paul. Look here. And they are all zealous of the law. Look at the accusation levied against Paul here. And they are informed of thee. We've heard about you, man that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles, and your Gentile churches that you've started, all the Jews that are a part of that, you're teaching these Jews to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. In essence, they said, Paul, that's great and all. We rejoice in how God used you. Spiritual platitudes. But word on the street is that you're telling Jewish believers in these churches that they are, that you are starting that they can just forsake the law of Moses and, 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 and be just like the Gentiles. And, and Paul, as far as your thousands of people saved, that's great, but there are thousands of Jewish Christians who, uh, who, who care about the law of Moses and they're not real happy with you. They're not real happy with you. And so Paul comes in with an offering. Listen, I bet Paul, all the way from Macedonia, all the way from Ephesus, as he's traveling around and making his way toward Jerusalem, I bet Paul is building up in his heart and his mind, the the church in Jerusalem, they don't like me, and they don't care for me, and I've collected this offering, and I'm going to walk in, and I'm going to give them this offering, and I'm going to introduce them to my Gentile team. These folks are polished, they're sharp, they're top of the top, they're best of the best. I'm going to bring them in, I'm going to introduce them, I'm going to wow them with my team, I'm, I'm going to tell them all these stories about how God's worked in a mighty way and surely the, their heart will open, their, their hearts will melt and we can be friends and everything will be healed and it will all be okay. And Paul finishes his story and that's not how it goes at all. They give him a cold-hearted response and then let her see, we see, they ask him for a careless requirement, their careless requirement. Look at verse number 22. Now, before we read the verses, I'll just say this. Um, I've known my whole life or most of my life that Paul got arrested in, or right, he got arrested in the temple in Jerusalem uh, where he would be sent off to Nero. But I guess I never really knew before I sat and really studied this out why. Why was he in the temple to begin with? Well, James and the elder board sent him into the temple. Look at verse 22. What is it therefore? Again, this is the elder board speaking to Paul through James, the multitudes must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Hey, Paul, word's going to get around our church and around town that you're here, and uh, you need to do some things to set yourself up for success. Look at verse 23. Do therefore this, that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. I'm going to explain what we're reading here in just a moment. Let's read down through 26. Take them and purify with them, and be at, at... charges with them. Notice that, be it charges with them. We're going to come back to that in a minute. That they may shave their heads and all may know that those things wherefore, uh, whereof uh, they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, 
save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and, and men, and uh, rather from strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple. So to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So here's what's happening here. James is t- James and the other border telling Paul, listen, people are upset with you here because they think that you just teach Jews all over the world to just trounce all over Moses' law. And understand, the people here are just as saved as the ones in your Gentile church. All right? But this crowd, they don't like you because they think that you're careless with Moses' law. You need to prove to them that you're not. So here's what's going to happen. We have four men who are ready to end their Nazarite vow. These are men who have, for one reason or another, uh, uh, have been labeled uh, unclean. And we want you to go through the process with them in the temple. The process laid out by Moses in the book of Numbers. Now, let me back up here. The Nazarite vow itself was a Mosaic institution. All right, You don't find any New Testament believers taking any sort of Old Testament vow. But the Nazarite vow itself, uh, it had three requirements. And you may remember this from the story of Samson. But they'd, uh, they'd grow out their hair. Uh, they, they could touch no dead thing. And they could not drink any fruit of the vine. Now, uh, according to commentator James Phillips, he says, it seems that four of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had taken a Nazarite vow and then allowed themselves to become ceremonially Defiled. Now, under the Mosaic law, uh, ceremonial defilement called for ceremonial cleansing. The Nazarite remained unclean for seven days. Then on that seventh day, he shaved his head and burned the hair. On the eighth day, he presented a costly sacrifice at the altar of the priest. He, he, um, he was to bring two lambs and a ram uh, along with a certain meal offering and a drink offering. So James proposed that in order to prove himself to all the Jews in Jerusalem that he respected the Mosaic law, James proposed that Paul pay for all, uh, for all of this for all four men. So uh, a, a male and female lamb and a ram, three animals, 12 animals in total. Paul had to pull out his wallet and pay for all 12 of these animals in order to prove that he still respected the Mosaic law. Uh, James proposed that he pay this. Moreover, he was to accompany them into the temple when they bought the various, brought the various animals to the priest. James and the other Jerusalem elders evidently had no compunction at all in saddling Paul with considerable expense. Paul was to buy a dozen prime animals as well as the rest of, uh, rest of it just to prove he was still a Jew, albeit a Christian Jew. But if it would reconcile his Jewish brethren, Paul was willing to do it. You see what's going on here? The, the church of Jerusalem, the elder board, they're saying to Paul, we're not really sure that you really are respectful of the law. You need to go through this cleansing ceremony with these men and you need to pay for it. Now, I just say here, I know they didn't like Paul. I get why they didn't like Paul and I understand all that. Paul just brought you a large offering. And now you're telling him to reach deeper in his pocket and pay for the sacrifice? Why would Paul go through with this? Why was Paul willing to say, okay, all right, let's do it? He clearly did not see a need to hold the Old Testament law to please God with his life. Paul had become accustomed to church life much like we know it today. There's a good chance that he had written or would write the book of Hebrews in which he would condemn Jewish sacrifices and such in the temple. 
So the question begs to be asked, why would he then turn around and participate in this ridiculous requirement put on him by James and the Jerusalem church? Take your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. Quickly, quickly, quickly. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. We're going to see why Paul would be willing to go through what I view as a ridiculous requirement, a careless requirement, put on him by James and the elder board. By the way, uh, the book of James is a great book. James is a great pastor, but this was not one of his finest moments. Look at 1 Corinthians 9 and look at verse 19. The Bible says, Paul speaking here, he says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews, look here, this is important to understand why Paul did what he did. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without the law as without law, being not without law to God but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. Now, Paul had no idea that he was going to be arrested in the temple. Paul was doing his very best to set himself up to begin a ministry to the Jews in Jerusalem and start another church in Jerusalem. So when Paul went through with this, Paul was doing his very best to be all things to all men, yet without sin, so that he could reach some. Why was Paul willing to go through this? Because he wanted to reconcile himself, and so he was willing to go through it. We're going to see in just a moment how careless this requirement was. We've seen, number one, we've seen uh, the Gentile Christians uh, caution. We've seen, number two, the Jewish Christians um, uh, uh, conditions. Number three, notice the Jewish mobs contempt. Contempt. Letter A, notice their false accusation. Their false accusation. All right, so before we read verse 27, Paul is going to go in the temple. He's going through with the ceremonial cleansing And then all of the lion's den shows up at one time. Look at verse 27. And when the seven days were almost ended, so Paul's going in day after day, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia. Now this is referring to Ephesus, okay? Uh, The word Asia here, we know Paul had a ministry in Asia in the city of Ephesus for two years, all right? So the Jews which were of Asia, the Jews which were of Ephesus. Let me me just give you a little more history context here, okay? Why were the Jews from Ephesus in the temple in Jerusalem, because this was the Passover. And it was custom for Jews from all over the world to travel and be there at the Passover. Okay, So you have these Jews from Ephesus that could not stand Paul. They happened to be in the temple at the same time they were. So back, back at verse 27, And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that treadeth, or that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and, and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. These Asian Jews from Ephesus, um, uh, they could not stand Paul, but in Ephesus, Paul was protected by various politicians, and he was well-liked in the community in the city, so they were at a disadvantage, but here they were not at a disadvantage. Here, they were surrounded by other Jews that likewise didn't like Paul and what Paul stood for, and this was their chance. They, they levied a false accusation against Paul. What was the accusation? 
Well, the first accusation was the same one the church of Jerusalem levied against him. There are people that think that you're teaching against the law of Moses to Jewish Christians. Well, they're accusing him of the same thing, but then they take it a step further. They then go on and say, this guy, he brought with him, he brought a Gentile into the temple. That was a big, big, big no-no in the Mosaic law. In fact, there was a sign posted right at that entry point that said, if you're a Gentile and you come in here, you will be killed. And it was so respected that not even the Roman soldiers crossed that line. They accused Paul of bringing a, a Gentile in there. Was it true? Nope. Did they care? Nope. They needed something to stir up the crowd to get Paul killed. And boy, they levied a false accusation against him. Letter B, we see their fierce attack. Their fierce attack. It's not enough that they grabbed him and they accused him falsely. Let's, let's see the lion's den. All, uh, all of the lions come at him at one time. Verse 30, and all the city was moved. And the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. So now he's out in that courtyard, and forthwith the doors were shut. Boy, they're, they're shutting down his avenues of escape. They're making sure his blood is not shed in the temple, but just out in the courtyard. Verse 31, and as they went about to kill him, there's the intent. They're trying to kill him. Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down into them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was when he, and what he had done. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he could not, certainly not, not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. So historically we know that right next to the temple there was a castle. In fact, the stairwell uh, that came down from the castle, the stairs came down into the uh, inner court or the courtyard there of the temple. And they knew how quick uh, things could get out of hand there in the temple and there uh, in the courtyard. And so the Roman government kept a lot of soldiers in that castle, stationed right there in that castle, so that at a moment's notice they could come flying down the stairs and deal with any sort of problems there in the courtyard. And lo and behold, they drag Paul out into the courtyard and they're trying to kill him. Word gets to the chief captain right next door there in the temple, or rather in the castle, what's going on. And he sends down centurions of soldiers and they come running down with shields and swords. I'm trying to paint a picture here for you in your mind. And they're ripping at Paul. They're beating on Paul. They're bludgeoning Paul. They're trying to kill Paul. They're probably stomping on him and kicking him as he's on the ground. And the centurions come flooding down the stairs and they the people uh, uh, part like the Red Sea and they pick up Paul and they put two chains on him and they probably lifted him up by the chains and they say, who is this guy and why are you beating him? And the crowd is in such a, a raucous that they're yelling and screaming over the top of each other. And the captain of the guard there, he cannot make sense over what's being said. We see their fierce attack. Boy, this sounds like someone else in Jerusalem who just a few years earlier was falsely accused and then beaten. Notice letter C. We see their familiar appeal. Their familiar appeal. Look at verse number 35 and verse 36. The Bible says, And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers, for the violence of the people 
For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him. Turn over to John chapter 19. John 19. They cried out, Away with him. I can hear Paul, see Paul there on the steps of the castle. There's soldiers at the base of the stairs holding back the crowd. They're picking up uh, uh, anything they get their hands on. They're throwing it toward Paul. They're angry at Paul. They're bloodthirsty to see Paul die. And one man yells out uh, from the crowd, Away with him! And then another voice, Away with him! And yet another voice, Away with him! Boy, this was a... Uh, these were words that had been spoken before in the city of Jerusalem to the Roman government in regards to a preacher. Look at John 19, verse 15. But they cried out, speaking of Jesus, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And boy, just as Jesus had... They had yelled about Jesus, away with him, away with him. That was a cry that meant kill him, kill him. Boy, we see this again. They want Paul dead. I think of Matthew chapter 23. I referenced this verse this morning in my sermon, 23:37, where Jesus is standing at a distance looking out at Jerusalem, maybe from an elevated point watching the people as they are interacting and going throughout their day, and maybe with a tear in his eye, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. Jerusalem had a long history of killing the prophets that were sent to invite them to the banquet table in heaven. And if they had had their way, Paul would have been next. They would have killed Paul too. But God was not done with Paul. God had several more New Testament books that he wanted Paul to write. God had a lot to go on. I'm going to circle back to the church of Jerusalem here quickly. Can you see why it was careless for them to send Paul into the temple? Furthermore, we never hear from James and the elders ever again. They didn't come and use their influence with the Sanhedrin and, and the Roman government to get Peter or Paul out of jail. Wanted nothing to do with him. And they just said, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah, what will be, will be. Maybe I'm being too hard on the Jerusalem church. But I think back to the words Jesus spoke in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Had Paul hurt them? Yes. Was there reason for real contempt and disdain toward Paul? Yes. But he was their brother in Christ. And he had turned a corner. He had gotten saved. And he was making every effort to make it right. When, when others do you dirty and wrong, and you have disdain in your heart toward them, you're called to forgive whether they deserve it or not. You say, well, I don't feel like forgiving them. Hear, hear me out on this. Forgiving is not an emotional decision. Forgiving is a spiritual decision. Forgiveness is a logical choice followed by a proper emotion. You're going to wait on your emotions to forgive someone. You're never going to forgive them. 
You have to choose to forgive whether you want to or not. And then God will give you the emotions that you desire later. Let me finish the sermon with the thought we began with tonight. I want to ask you, everyone this. Are you serving God? Ask yourself that question. Am I serving God? If the answer is yes, on what level are you serving God? Are you serving God sporadically, inconsistently? Are you serving God when it's convenient and on your schedule? Or are you serving God no matter the cost? Are you willing when the time is, your, the time is called for you to do so, are you willing to walk into your lion's den? The way David and Daniel and the three Hebrew boys and Esther, many others in and out of Scripture, and then as we saw here, Paul, when God calls you to walk into your lion's den, are you going to have the courage and heart and faith in God to do so? Listen, many people will stand up and say, I'm willing to die for Christ. I finish with this. Please listen. Many people will say, I'm willing to die for Christ. At this moment, right now, you are not being called to die for Christ. But you are being called to live for Christ. If you're not willing to live for Christ today, you're not going to be willing to die for Christ tomorrow. So let's analyze and look at and consider that thought. Do I only serve God when it's convenient? Or is my priority to give God my heart and my life? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, thank you for White Oak Baptist Church. Each one, each one that's here this evening is, is, is special to me even more special to you. Lord, not a one of us is going to get to heaven and stand before you and, and say at that time, boy, I sure wish that my pastor had pushed me less to serve God. Lord, when that day comes, we're going to wish we had all done more and been pushed harder. Oh, Lord God, help us to analyze our hearts. Help us to be honest before you. God, may we give you our heart tonight for service. I think of what Paul told the church of Rome in Romans 12. He says it is your reasonable service that we present ourselves a living sacrifice. Lord, may we do that. May we do it when it's dangerous. May we do it when it's not. May we live for you so that when the day comes and we're called upon, we'd be willing to die for you the way that you died for us. Lord, may we make decisions tonight that move us closer to having the heart you'd have us to have. In Jesus' name.